You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Garth Greenwell. Hello, could I please speak with Garth Greenwell? This is he. Hi, Paul. How are you? I am very well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's wonderful to hear your voice. It's wonderful to hear yours. What am I interrupting at this moment? Nothing at all. Just uh, uh, sitting in my office waiting for your call. And how does that feel? Uh, um, Well, I'll tell you... uh, Last week I was on the road while the book was coming out and um, reviews were coming in and it feels, I am so relieved to be at home and um, it feels wonderful to have a week respite without book stuff, um, just with teaching. But, so but it's wh- a complete delight to get to talk to you. But what, what? What a week and what reviews. I mean, we'll talk about them in a moment. What, what strikes me most about these reviews is not only how they complement cleanness, your, your new, we'll, we'll get to what it might be, uh, uh, book, let's say for now, but also the, the quality of the reviews in terms of how beautifully they're written. I mean, Colm Toybin's piece, for instance, is just, magnificent and so many of them are and i'm so and kiefer's piece i mean they're so wonderful and so you inspire people to write well about you oh well that's a i mean that's a lovely thing to imagine i i do feel um incredibly lucky lucky you know well absolutely you know i think it's you know, uh, a book is lucky to get any reviews at all, but then to get reviews that are not so much reviews as essays. I mean, to get to get to see people um, trying to think with the book alongside the book in a kind of serious way is um, it's very moving. It's very uh, it's very gratifying. It must be invigorating too. And as I said before, um, we'll get to what cleanness is nine one might say nine nine um stories that are, are definitely connected but it's very hard i think for anybody and including all the reviewers to quite say what it is um is it a novel is it not a novel and do we care i care to quote this line uh, to you and as you will tell i'm i'm a quotomaniac by profession but i i i I'd like um, to quote this line, maybe two or three of them very quickly. Um, the first one is from Lawrence Stern, where he says, to define is to distrust. And then one by Robert Creeley, I really love, where he says, nothing will fit if we assume a place for it. I wonder how you respond and maybe respond in the context of what you've written yourself. Sure. Uh, I, I mean, I think, um, I think I agree, you know, uh, I don't like the idea that there, um, exists in the world kind of ready-made containers 
that I have to pour work into. Now, this is a complicated question because yeah. um, I have a a sort of um, important relationship to uh, form, to a tradition. Uh, I do feel like I am writing into something that pre-exists me when we're thinking about um, the kinds of sentences I write and the kind of conversation I aspire to be in with other writers. But in terms of a marketplace, the idea that there are these categories, what I make has to fit into, um, I find that deeply discomforting and not in a way that um, feels invigorating for art. You know, I guess there's also something, you know, um, I am always interested, so a, a kind of fundamental view I have of books or, or, or a fundamental agreement I have about books is with Ian Forster, who described mm. you know, the relationship with a book as being very similar to one's relationship with a person. Mm. And it is very interesting to me what happens when one engages with a person, when one has a face-to-face encounter with a person who defeats the conceptual framework um, one has for categorizing persons. I mean, this is uh, a queer experience. Why is it that people are made so uncomfortable if someone's gender um, is unreadable? Why is it that people are so uncomfortable if a book's genre is unreadable, is not immediately... Um, legible. And how does that then affect sociality among people? How does that affect our relationship with um, other books? Uh, that's something that really interests me. And and you and you speak um, quite beautifully about this notion of nearly the, the what you call the virtue of uh, promiscuity. And I. I, I, I saw that Ilya Kaminsky posted something today that I really love from Milos, where he says that the purpose of poetry is to remind us how difficult it is to remain just one person. Huh. That's wonderful, isn't it? Um, I, I love when um, I love when one reads something to someone and they just go, ha. And um, 
the idea that these nine chapters or nine stories um, that they can be centers of intensity that are then held in a kind of relationship that is not chronology or the cause and consequence of plot, but instead something like harmonic relations, you know, a relation of key or a relation of texture. Um, that to me is the most accurate description of the book, but people can talk about it however they want. You know, when, when I was speaking uh, before about th this notion you bring about of, of promiscuity, it made me think that what you are, um, perhaps what you are aspiring to and, and probably what, what moves you is exactly the contrary of what Kierkegaard said when he said that purity of heart is to will one thing. I think in many ways, like, like the, the wonderful line that Mary Oliver quotes at the beginning of Red Bird, where she said, she's quoting Van Gogh, who said, but I always think that the best way to know God is to love many things. Oh, and it, and I just, I just feel when I was reading you, I just felt that, um, there was such a capacious imagination and the, the, um, the the narrator i mean it's so hard i mean you've put us in such a difficult situation of describing who is talking who is reacting and i find this um discomfort uh, rather comforting I love that. I, I mean, I love that you exist. Um, you know, uh, I hope that, um, well, I guess I'll say, you know, uh, since uh, my background in literature was in poetry, I mean, the lyric, when one writes a lyric poem, there is all sorts of mystery that one wants to accommodate and that, you know, um, it seems permissible to simply put a voice in a situation and not fret about novelistic backstory. And I like that, um, the intensity that comes from that, uh, the sense of concentration that comes from, you know, working with negative space. Yeah. It's something that interests me a lot. And then, you know, I love what you quote from Kierkegaard. Um, Kierkegaard was... Um, at a certain period of my life really important to me as were the early church fathers and um, the, the idea of wholeheartedness and the idea of what it would mean to will one thing and the idea that that is the ideal you know I think the early Greek fathers had a word dipsychia yes so yes Right, divided psyche, divided soul, divided self for what is the plague of humankind? You know, what, what devotion can take away from us and give us a kind of single soul, single self? Well, I mean, that is a desire I feel intensely. I mean, I am an, an atheist, but I am someone with a devotional temperament. Art is religion for me. Um, I feel a great desire to devote myself in a kind of single-souled way. And I do think one of the things I write about is being someone who is equipped with that desire and yet 
it seems to me simply a fact of the world that we don't get such an object, that we don't have access to an object that would allow us to be single-hearted, that we will always be these divided selves, and that being a human being in the world means figuring out how to live with that. And and one might say that the the other goal is to be um, a, a other goal and other aspiration is to be immersed, um, to be immersed. I mean, the pleasure of immersion on so many on so many levels. Of course, um, I let our listeners imagine them all. But the possibility of being immersed, the possibility of not being distracted from distraction by distraction of being of being present um you know the other the other wonderful line of kierkegaard i so much love is he says the goal the real goal is to arrive at immediacy after reflection you know the idea of immediacy Like, what would be an experience of existence that we might think of as immediate, as without medium? Um, you know, that also, like, because to me, existence is always so intensely mediated. You know, we have no access, it seems to me, to a kind of immediate world or immediate experience, and yet we so long for it. Um I mean, that's another way of getting at this dilemma. But what you say about kind of immersion is really interesting because that seems to me to be something very different from the idea of willing something with a single will. Because yes. Immersion to me suggests a letting go of the will and, you know, an attempt to exist in a kind of willlessness. And that does seem to me a grand alternative and maybe a grand... Um, response to a sense of human life as being structured by a double bind in which we, we feel an imperative to be of a single will, and yet we are confronted by a world that will not give us an object that unifies our will. Well, maybe if we um, give up somehow, or if, if, if another ideal could be giving up the will, and instead a kind of immersion. I mean, then that does present an interestingly different um, set of possibilities and problems. It, it, it seems to me that one of the things you're, you're saying here is that an object has been offered to you, and that object is art, that object is writing, that object is thinking as you write, is probably reading, and I imagine that it is also teaching. Well, I mean, I, I do think that, um, you know, my experiences of what someone like the philosopher Charles Taylor might call a limit experience, I mean, my experience of something that a, a kind of differently equipped person might call transcendence. Those experiences have come through art and eros. Um, and those are orienting experiences for me. 
the experience of art, the experience of sex. Um, those are experiences that suggest the possibility of a kind of suffusing significance or meaning. Um, I, you know, on one hand, that seems to me true, and I do orient my life towards or around such sources of meaning. On the other hand, you know, I can step to the side and see that meaning dissolve. Um, you know, there is a way in which, uh, well, I'll say maybe the truest thing, uh, the truest line I know about human existence comes from the great poet Frank Bedard, who says, man needs a metaphysics, he may not have one. Oh, wow, wow, wow. I love that. Extraordinary sort of statement of the double bind that seems to me a kind of structuring fact of human life. So art, for me, is the best object I have. Um, teaching is something different. You know, teaching was in education for me when I worked with young people, when I worked with, I was a high school teacher for seven years. That was a wonderful education for me, in a kind of affective life, affective relation that I had not thought I was capable of before, which is, you know, the relation of disinterested love. I loved my students with a kind of love I did not, um, I, I, I had never thought I might be able to feel. And that was an extraordinary gift that teaching gave me. I think teaching made me a novelist because it made me interested in other people in a way that I hadn't been. Um, and in other people as narratives, I was so fascinated by, you know, my students' lives as stories, watching these 14, 15, 16-year-olds navigate life. Um, I mean, that was an extraordinary education for a novelist. And in many ways, the very, the very first story in Cleanness, Mentor, um, contains uh, that encounter with um, with students. I love this line so much, Garth, where you say, my profession is a kind of long looking. Um, I think it's it's splendid because it also speaks about the importance of rhythm and the importance of slowness and the importance of taking one's time. Ah. I mean, those are virtues for me. You know, I mean, and in fact, what, what you've just said to me kind of encapsulates everything I think I know about writing, that, um, you know, when one makes art, one is striving to see as clearly as one can and in the fullness of one's faculties. And um, that doing that requires a kind of patience and unhurriedness and a really strange, complicated negotiation between will and willlessness, um, agency and receptivity. Um, I think that's true about teaching. And I think it taught me something really profound about um, what education is and how education happens and the extent to which education is not um, solely or maybe even primarily a matter of, say, propositions that one imparts. You know, I felt like my job as a teacher, maybe my, maybe my profoundest job 
Um, and maybe I felt this especially as a queer teacher. Um, four of the years I taught, I was living in Bulgaria, which is a very homophobic place and where my queer students were extraordinarily vulnerable and where um, queer people, uh, as in Kentucky where I grew up, are taught that their lives lack value and their lives lack meaning. And that my job was to see my students as they were and then to reflect that vision of them back to them. And what I saw um, were lives that were possessed of a value that is infinite, like I think all human value is infinite. And that that was my job as an educator, to try to give my students some truer vision of themselves. You know, you, you, you seem to me um, in describing that modeling to not be far away from what a good psychoanalyst might, might be able to do. You know, I have my, my only experience of psychoanalysis has been through reading um, great writers of psychoanalysis like Freud and like Adam Phillips. And um, just before our conversation, I was reading your interview with Adam Phillips um, for the Paris Review, in which he said many very brilliant things and many things that immediately felt true to me. You know, one of them being, and this is something that I think is just um, so profound in my feeling about human life, that the point, like, I see human life as structured by these double binds. Um, that's not something I've argued. That's not a view of life I've argued my way into or reasoned my way into. I think it is just my temperament. And it is so clear to me that the point is not to try to solve those double binds, that solution is not an option. Right. And, you know, what Adam Phillips says about psychoanalysis is, you know, that, that um, people come to psychoanalysis because they, they are in pain. And that um, the point of psychoanalysis is not primarily to relieve them of that pain. It is instead to give them some new conceptual framework for thinking about or thinking with that pain. That seems to me just profoundly true. Profoundly true. And, you know, Adam also says that, I mean, he's, he's really agnostic when it comes to psychoanalysis. Take it or leave it. And uh, if you take it, take it because you have an appetite for it. You have, and this gets closer to you, I think now, you have a desire for it um, uh, in, in a profound way. And I think that, to my mind, is, is very important. That, to my mind, is really what can make that exchange, which is also an exchange of modeling, not dissimilar to what you were saying about teaching, which seems to me quite profound and important. There is one line. Um, I won't be reading many lines from the reviews. All I can say to the listeners, I mean, is that I have really, uh, when we set up to have a phone call many, many, many months ago, and then we waited a little bit, um, for this, for this extraordinary book to come out. Um, I had no idea what kind of a response your work, your second book would get. 
But this line by Kolm Toibin haunts me. He says, one of the problems that any gay writer faces is how to depict happiness. And, yeah, um, and I, I, I wonder how, how that resonated with you. I think happiness is incredibly hard to write um, whether one is gay or not. I, I, I can only think of a, a few places where happiness in an unadulterated way is described and makes you feel the happiness with which maybe it was lived, if not written. I think of some of Camus' extraordinary essays in, in, uh, in his book called Summer, L'été, I don't know how it's called in English. Or um, then I also think of the extraordinary remark of uh, Stendhal in The Life of Henri Brulard, where he's asked about a performance he just heard. He went to hear Il, uh, Il Matrimonio Segreto of Cimarosa, and somebody asks him how he felt about it, and he really, really doesn't want to talk about it, but he has to, um, uh, and because he's a consul and has a kind of a public uh, position. And then in, in La Vie de Henri Brulard, he says, J'eus l'enfance de parler de mon bonheur. I had the childishness to speak about my happiness. And so, Colm's, Tobin's comment, which I think is, is directed to, to, to your work, I, I wonder, I wonder what it, how it resonates with you. And I'm sorry to have mentioned all these various things from Camus to Stendhal. No, that's, uh, that's quite lovely. Um, you know, that, uh, the experience of reading that review was a kind of unique experience in, in my life um, as a writer, uh, in part because of the importance Colin Toybean has had for me as a reader. Um, he is to me just one of the supreme artists in English, um, both in fiction and then also, I mean, he has an essay, an essay collection, a brilliant essay collection on queer art called Love in a Dark Time. Yes. Which I read when I was an undergraduate and was just kind of my orientation in queer art making. And, um, that review, which it, it, it felt like he was reading my book from the inside and sort of surveying in this very serious, sober, um, way each story or chapter and you know, seeing the problems presented in that chapter and then the solutions the chapter tried to find. And when he talked about the central section of the book, which is called The Frog King, um, which, which is a story of happiness, a story of happy love, um, and, and says that line, I mean, it was profound. You know, I felt kind of pulverized actually by that line, kind of reduced to dust by that line, you know, which, which places the work in this long view of the writing of queer lives. And um, it was very moving that then he thought that that story had kind of found its way to writing happiness. 
and um, I, you know, I uh, what to say about that? I mean, I felt um, you know, it was not like reading a review, you know. Um, reading a review, I do read. Re I aspire to be a writer who doesn't read their reviews, but I have not attained that. I do read reviews. I wonder. I wonder if if many of the writers who have told us all that they don't read reviews are telling us that they don't read reviews and really don't read reviews. I do wonder. I mean, I think that, you know, I had a childhood that, um, you know, radically owned my sense of humiliation. And I cannot bear the thought of not knowing um, what people are saying about something that I've made. And, you know, I do read reviews with, you know, I, I anticipate reviews with anxiety. Last week was a very anxious week in part because I knew that the reviews were coming. Um, reading Colm Toybean's piece, you know, and the thing about reviews is that, I, I mean, it matters whether they're good or bad and you hope that they're good and that can have a, ra you know, a drastic effect on the, the life of, of a book in the world. But there's a way in which whether they're good or bad, there's still something discomforting about them because you're being judged. Whether someone is saying something you've done is good or bad, you feel judged. With the column toy being review, I felt seen. Ooh, ooh, wow, yeah. A profoundly different experience and one I was grateful for and one that I feel um, is very likely to be unique in you know, my career as a writer. I just feel enormously grateful to that review. That's why I, I wanted to single it out because it, it, it felt, it felt as though he was really, really paying attention and really looking at the work and as it were, nearly looking at you. And what I, what I've, what I've, I've loved also is, um, in, in, in several essays, you, you talk about this, this notion of a, of, of the importance of influence and the importance of a tradition. And you talk about a queer chosen family network, not, not in order to say, you know, I come from nothing. No, I come from forebearers uh, with a long, long, long tradition of writing. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, but also, then tell me what now when you are teaching uh, in Iowa uh, at the writers uh, uh, school what what are you what are you imparting to them what are you transmitting to them i know that for instance henry james is very much um part of the syllabus <laughs> he is part of the syllabus yes um, <laughs> I, I love your laugh yeah, yeah. well it's funny you know i think um um, you know, Henry James is quite a polarizing figure to me. He is the supreme architect of sentences in English. Um, other people find him impenetrable. I'm, I'm excited. So my students, we will be discussing Henry James, uh, on, uh, next week on Tuesday. And I, I, you know, I'm excited and also anxious to see what they think. You know, when I was an undergraduate, when I left music school and began teaching literature, I remember one of the one of the first kind of theoretical texts we read, critical texts we read, or concepts we were exposed to, was Harold Bloom's Anxiety of Influence. And Harold 
great genius and I think was, was describing something real that existed in a certain tradition that he was interested in. But this idea that the relationship between writers is agonistic and that it's a relationship in which, you know, in order to clear a space in which he, and I do think in Bloom's model, the artist is always he, in which he can create, a, a poet has to disfigure and in some ways kind of demolish the great poets in whose shadow he's writing. Well, that just felt immediately to me radically foreign to my sense of, just to what I felt to the writers in the tradition that I knew I wanted to write into, which are queer writers, but not, I mean, obviously not exclusively queer writers. I mean, I think of a tradition just as a conversation between artists across time. And one reason that I like the metaphor of the conversation, as opposed to, say, a wrestling match like um, Bloom's, is that clearly one is involved in multiple conversations at one time. And so, you know, this queer tradition, which to me includes, you know, Proust and Wolf and Thomas Mann and uh, Bernhardt and James Baldwin, you know, that is a tradition um, that is also in conversation with a different tradition that I think has its starting point in St. Augustine, a tradition of inwardness, a tradition of seeing literature as a kind of technology for excavating the self, a sense that if one can't, that one's own, um, you know, consciousness, one's own experience of the world can be productive of revelation. Um, I do not feel in any way competitive with you know, the writers I want to be in conversation with. And it is one of my primary motivations for writing. It's because I want to have a conversation with James Baldwin. I want to have a conversation with Edmund White. Um, that is not, you know, I feel the most intense gratitude. And the, the model for me is not a kind of agonistic conflict, but it is instead libidinal, erotic, you know, this desire to um, experience the pleasure of another consciousness. You know, you know, um, since you mentioned Adam Phillips, Adam says that when we talk to each other, things fall out of our pocket. And then he also says, you can't tickle yourself. Isn't it? You, we need others. I need, yeah, even, right. even though I'm not seeing you now, um, Gas, I, I, I need hearing your voice inspires and conspires in me all kinds of feelings. Um, and eros in a, in, in the sense of, of, de of deep desire. Um, a, a desire in, in a sense to know more. And when you use the word queer, to my mind, it means um, multiplicity. Mm. It means no, I'm not where you think I am. Well, that's absolutely. I mean, it means, um, you know, there are definitions that you want to impose on this encounter to make it immediately legible to you. And those definitions are inadequate. Yeah, and so we have to face each other face to face without them and see what happens. 
exactly right what you say and then what Adam Phillips, what you quote Alan, Adam Phillips is saying. You know, the last thing I would ever want would be the sense of myself as creating art in some sort of pure, the pure isolation of a mountaintop. Um, I want to make art that feels like communion, that feels like the creation of community um, with with the art that has, you know, that has given me my life. I mean, the art that has made it possible for me to live. Um, I, I, the last thing I would ever want would be to disfigure that art so that I could have the delusion of my own originality. You you began uh, or was somewhere in our conversation, God knows where you 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 were speaking about your your life at the beginning, as it were, which was a life of of music and studying music and uh, the leader and uh, Schubert and probably so many other um, composers you you sang to. Um, but then you spoke about Frank Bidar and you have a, a fantastic, fantastic interview about him, which I encourage everybody to read. I think it was published in the Atlantic. Um, but poetry seems also to still occupy a, a rather large space in your in your reading and thinking and loving life. And who are those poets you you gravitate to, towards? And is there a poem you might want to read to us? I would love to. I would love to read a poem. And um, kind of the poem I have to hand is uh, we had the first session of workshop. Um, this week, and every workshop, every fiction workshop I teach, uh, I try ideally every class, sometimes it's not possible, but ideally every class we read a poem together and talk about a poem. I think um, it's just something prose writers have to do. And the first poem we read together um, was a poem by Kavafi, who is, for me, one of the supreme poets. Um, and it's this poem uh, in the translation by Keeley and Sherard, um, called The Bandaged Shoulder, so I'll, I'll read that if that's okay. Please do. The Bandaged Shoulder. He said he'd hurt himself against a wall or had fallen down. But there was probably some other reason for the wounded, the bandaged shoulder. Because of a rather abrupt gesture, as he reached for a shelf to bring down some photographs he wanted to look at, the bandage came undone, and a little blood ran. I did it up again, taking my time over the binding. He wasn't in pain, and I liked looking at the blood. It was a thing of my love, that blood. When we left, I found in front of his chair a bloody rag, part of the dressing, a rag to be thrown straight into the garbage. And I put it to my lips and kept it there a long while, the blood of love against my lips. Goodness. To, to that, I, I will read you another Kavafi poem. I wonder if you know it. It's called He Vows. Mm. Every so often he vows to start 
a better life. But when night comes with its own counsels, with its compromises and with its promises, but when night comes with its own drive of the body that desires and craves, he turns again abashed to the same fateful pleasures. I, I just think, Garth, these, these two poems, uh, you know, I mean, Kavafi really, not unlike you, um, sort of, well, not sort of, simply does arouse us. I read a swerve from 
a kind of daylight sociality to this absolute abjection where he's putting this bloody rag to his lips. Um, and yet, you know, the tone is so sublime. Yeah. The tone is so unperturbed. I mean, the tone itself gives the sense um, that actually, you know, maybe one can live with these dilemmas. Maybe they don't have to, you know, be um, recipes for our own for our own destruction and for the destruction of others at our hands. I love the way in in this incantation you you come back again and again to the possibility that maybe and you repeat again and again and again just maybe 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 we can maybe we should aspire to such a life not a life of complexity, but a life that allows complexity. Hmm. Yeah, what if, what if we just give up the idea of solution? What if we just give up the idea of cleanness? You know, what if we allow the desire for it, which can be productive of all sorts of wonderful things, but what if we refuse the tyranny of it? What if we accept that, um, you know, that that desire for cleanness does not demand scourging away anything that seems to us filthy? I mean, what if we can live in a kind of queerly undefined, queerly um, trammeled, queerly sullied place? You know, what if we can make a home there? That seems to me, um, you know, I cannot argue my, my way to that place, but I feel like um, art gives me a kind of navigating device that maybe lets me make these double binds become not impasses, but something that can be productive, something that I can move forward with. Just maybe. Just maybe. Just There's maybe. No you can't, you can't. Promise. Yeah, it's not a promise, but there might be, as, as Gershom Scholem once said, a, a shard of hope in it. And maybe, yeah. maybe there's, you know, a, a nostalgia for that wholeness that is made of many little parts. <laughs> Garth, um, in, in closing, sadly, might I add, I'd love to give those people who will eavesdrop on our conversation a little bit of you, a little bit of cleanness. Uh, perhaps you could read a page or two. And I'm thinking in particular of the second um, chapter, Gospodar, um, that last paragraph or two, but of course, choose anything else. Sure, I'll be so happy to. Um, I'll read that last paragraph, and um, I don't think maybe it will work without too much context. I'll just say that the narrator has been through a very intense, um, terrifying encounter. 
encounter and has escaped. And as he leaves um, a man's apartment, a man who has assaulted him, walks down the street, um, he feels like he's going to be sick, like he's going to throw up. He turns into an alley, and instead of being sick, he bursts into tears. It was a fit of weeping, violent and brief. And as my breath steadied, I felt a sense of resolution, that I had been lucky and must learn from that luck. I wouldn't go back to such a place. I thought this would be the end of it. But how many times had I felt that I could change? I had felt it through all the long months with R, months that I had spent for all my happiness in a state of perpetual hunger. And so at the same time I felt it, I felt too that my resolution was a lie, that it had always been a lie, that my real life was here. And I thought this even as I struggled to climb from the new depth I had been shown. And even as I climbed or sought to climb, I knew that having been shown it, I would come back to it when the pain had faded and the fear, maybe not to this man, but to others like him, I would desire it, though I didn't desire it now. And for a time, I would resist my desire, but only for a time. There was no lowest place, I thought. I would strike ground only to feel it give way gaping beneath me. And I felt with a new fear how little sense of myself I have, how there was no end to what I could want or to the punishment I would seek. For some moments, I wrestled with these thoughts. And then I stood and turned back to the boulevard, composing as best I could my human face. Gas, what a pleasure it has been speaking with you. I, oh, the pleasure has been mine. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you so much, and all, all the very, very best. And all I can say is I wish I could be there on Tuesday to hear you sp speak about Henry James. Thank you so much. It would be a joy. You are welcome anytime. Thank you. I'll take that as a good invitation. Great. All the best to you. Bye-bye.